Hello, Oyster Bay, and welcome to another episode of the Oyster Bay Arena, the podcast for and about the hamlet of Oyster Bay, Strong Island, New York. In a semi-regular fashion, we bring you the news you can use, as well as the history, politics, and other goings-on in our little corner of paradise here on the North Shore. How are you doing? Is everybody okay? Uh, we're pretty good over here on Ansta Street, but as quarantine stretches into the third week, I sure wish there was another set of walls I could look at. Um, kids are sleeping late, and my dog and I are in a race to see who can eat the most snacks and thereby gain the most weight. Uh, kids are busy with school, uh, and my wife is discovering the technological wonder that is the Zoom call. Uh, adjusting to the new normal has been a challenge, for sure. Uh, working with five individual schedules and making sure we stay out of each other's way has been interesting, to say the least. But like all of you, we are learning on the fly and making the best of a situation that would have seemed unimaginable even a month ago. Today, I am bringing you an interview with Danny Rivera, who you might remember was the very first guest on the arena a little more than a year ago. Uh, in that first episode, I spoke to Danny in his capacity as a small business owner who was running his uh, scuba shop out of his Oyster Bay home. Uh, today, we are going to speak to Danny in his other professional capacity uh, as a paramedic and EMT out in Suffolk County. Uh, I thought you all might find it interesting to speak to someone who is on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19 and to get a raw, unvarnished look at how the pandemic is playing out across Long Island uh, through the eyes of someone who's dealing with it uh, on a daily basis. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the daily briefings from Governor Cuomo, but the numbers that were released today are not good. We had uh, 562 New Yorkers who died yesterday of COVID-19. Uh, Nassau County currently has uh, 12,024 cases confirmed, while Suffolk clocks in at uh, 10,154. And as big as those numbers are, they are expected to rise dramatically over the next few weeks. Um, officials are apparently quite upset with Long Islanders for failing to maintain a safe social distance. Uh, and they're warning that stricter enforcement measures are at hand. Uh, this is something that Danny and I touch at at some length in the interview. I know in uh, Oyster Bay, uh, officials have been ratcheting up uh, staff. Uh, public safety officers have been reassigned from Bay Constable uh, and government buildings to boost the number of officers patrolling parks. So that's gone up from 12 to 20. Uh, the town has also brought back 24 Parks Department staff who had been deemed not essential to issue verbal warnings to parkgoers who were violating social distancing practices. And the town also contacted residents via robocall to, ask, robocall to ask parents to tell their children about the importance of social distancing while using town parks. Can't say I got my robocall, but uh, maybe it's just on the way. So uh, it's a great talk Danny and I had, and I think you guys are going to love it. Uh, it's also a long interview, so let's get right into it. Um, without further ado, I will see you on the other side. Uh, and now here is my conversation with Danny Rivera. Okay, today we're welcoming back Danny Rivera to the podcast. You may remember Danny from episode one, where he uh, talked all about scuba diving on Long Island and what it is like to operate a small business based in Oyster Bay. Uh, Danny had set out to reinvent the notion of the traditional scuba shop. Uh, like all true startups, his story began in a garage in Oyster Bay. Well, actually, 
a little bit before that, right? Uh, uh, yeah, started in the basement apartment. <laughs> right, and graduated to the garage, and, and look at you now. Um, in, in addition to being the owner and head instructor of Good Life Divers, Danny is also a, a New York State uh, certified EMT and a paramedic for a fire district in Suffolk County. I thought it might be worthwhile to visit a bit with Danny to discuss the one topic on everyone's mind, COVID-19, the virus, what uh, Danny is seeing out there in the field on the front lines as he goes out on calls and transporting patients to local hospitals, uh, what he sees at the local hospitals, uh, also what he recommends with respect to social distancing and behavior and where he sees this thing eventually ending up. Uh, hello, Danny. Welcome back to the Oyster Bay Arena. Uh, Thank you for having me. I guess my first question is, uh, how are you doing? Um, I'm actually doing quite well. That's good. <laughs> uh, we're a bit bored, but uh, everybody's healthy and uh, we're... Yeah, we're doing we're doing all right. We're trying to make the best of this whole situation. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going around. Um, it's kind of the new normal is kind of weird. I thought before we started talking about um, the EMT stuff, we could um, maybe visit for a little bit about uh, the dive business and how your business has been affected by uh, COVID nineteen. I, I imagine you can't do any in face um, classes at this point, right? Yeah. So everything is essentially shut down uh we have uh some kind of automated uh stuff at the shop so if somebody needed to drop something off or pick something up we could handle that uh but business is closed until further notice yeah i guess uh, scuba diving is not considered an essential business in new york i don't know it, you know what it depends on who you talk to but uh According to the governor, it is not an essential business. That is a shame. You uh, you mentioned a shop. I think the last time uh, you were on the podcast and we spoke, you did not have a shop. You were working out of your out of your garage. So uh, I guess you have a, a shop now and a pool and all that good stuff. Yes, actually, I didn't realize it was that long ago that we talked. Uh, yeah, so we do now have a retail shop, a classroom, and a in house pool uh, in Lindenhurst, New York. Um, so we've graduated from the garage and from the house, and now we're in a, an actual brick-and-mortar building. That's great. Onward and upwards, right? People seem to have a lot of time on their hands when they're not, you know, running after their kids and, and trying to work from home. There is a, a, all that commuting time. So if somebody wanted to occupy that time, say, learning to scuba dive or maybe increasing their knowledge, maybe taking a more advanced class. Is there any way you could do that remotely? I mean, obviously you couldn't have a pool session, but what about uh, online so what learning? We, what we're actually offering now, uh, we have uh, discounts on the e-learning code. So you'll be able to accomplish the academics and classroom portion of any of our courses. Oh. And then for the courses that don't require face-to-face, uh, or like an in-person hands-on kind of session, we're conducting them through Zoom or Google Hangouts. So we're trying to try to keep busy, uh, but you know, trying to manage that with having kids and homeschooling and all that other good stuff. Uh, it's quite difficult, but we, you know, we're putting it out there for uh, for everybody. Yeah, I think a lot of parents are learning uh, the art of juggling more than anything else, uh, schedule-wise. I mean, I. I Personally, I, I, I have a monstrous commute back in the, the old days before the apocalypse. So for me, I'm like gaining like three hours a day, uh, but it's, it's not as if I'm just sitting around, you know. There's plenty of, plenty of stuff to fill up that time. It makes you wonder what you were doing with that time beforehand, right? 
Yeah, right. Well, mostly listening to podcasts as I drive drive on the <laughs> on the Cross Bronx. <laughs> so I don't yeah, do that quite, anymore. I'm, I'm quite behind on all my podcasts. I gotta I gotta catch up on them. Well, and that's the interesting thing. You know, I dropped that episode on Typhoid Mary last week, thinking you know people are just sitting around and you know they'll have something to listen to, but. Really, you know, people listen to that stuff when they're driving in their car, mostly, or, you know, in the middle of doing something else. And if they're sitting at home in their living room, chances are they're not saying, oh, geez, I wonder, you know, what the, the Oyster Bay Arena's latest podcast is all about <laughs> and spinning it out. So uh, I don't know that, you know, it's it's been a slow climb for that episode, but, you know, it, it's been a while since I put one out. So I think I've lost a bit of, bit of audience. And even in the space of a, the year since I started, the uh, Oyster Bay Arena, the the number of podcasts has increased exponentially. It's like everybody with a microphone is out there. Like I remember two months ago, I put in the search box on uh, iTunes, um, COVID-19 or coronavirus podcast, because I was kind of interested in seeing what was out there. And I think there was two or three of them. I did the same thing this morning and there's got to be at least 30. Um, (laughs) Everybody wants to know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can hit it from every, just about every angle you want. Uh, If you want to drive yourself completely mental all day long by, by nothing but COVID-19 coverage, it's out there. So to segue into, uh, <laughs> into the, the actual topic of this podcast, um, I kind of figured we'd, we'd pick your brain and see what's going on out there in the, in the world at large. I mean, we're all kind of stuck in our houses and seeing stuff on the news, um, you know, watching the, the governor's press conference every day and the tales of woe coming out of uh, New York City, um, you know, but the news is the news and, and you know, people don't, get a chance to talk to somebody who's on the front lines as it were. So, um, I figured I, I would, you know, see if I could, I could pick your brain on that. Uh, and uh, I will, I will try my best. Okay. Very good. So, um, I guess the first question I would, I would say is, uh, ask is, is it, has there been any uptake uptick in, um, calls that you've been receiving, uh, since the pandemic as it were sort of, started picking up steam so that so to answer that question uh it's all about the geographics of where somebody's actually working mm-hmm. uh, fortunately for myself and the guys that i work with uh we've actually had a decrease in call volume over the past three three or so weeks uh there's a few surrounding districts that their call volume at this point now is almost unhandled really uh yeah it it all depends on where they actually are so um, i have uh, colleagues in western nassau in uh, you know southern nassau and in western suffolk and they're bombarded Uh, where i work we think that the call volumes are going to be increasing soon so we're sitting in the uh the the calm of the storm if you will uh, before it absolutely goes crazy. That's uh, interesting. I guess as the virus sort of spreads west to east, um, maybe you'll you'll be seeing more activity, uh, assuming that, that that is in fact the way that it's happening. I mean, it seems like Queens is sort of the epicenter and on the island, and it's kind of kind of heading. Uh, but but it's it's difficult to tell from those maps that pop up every day how exactly how accurate they are. I mean, have you gotten any? In the, even in this decreased number of calls that you're getting, have any of them been for uh, people who have symptoms of COVID-19? Uh, essentially, the calls that we're getting now and uh, speaking to other guys 
other districts, all of the or maybe like about 90% of them are all COVID-19 related. Uh, and at this point now, uh, the way that we, our procedures are, no matter what the call type is, is a potential COVID-19 exposure. So somebody gets into a, a car accident um, as a COVID patient until proven otherwise. Hmm. Um, so I, I guess you treat that as a, um, as a, as a potential COVID-19 case. So do, do you have, do you put on PPE for every call now? Yeah. So at, we are, we, in my department that I work for, we have Tyvek suits, which are the same uh, type of PPE that we were going to use for the Ebola outbreak that happened a few years ago. Right. Uh, so we're using those. I know a lot of the departments are uh, putting all of their responders and uh, EMS personnel in scrubs and then, uh, with gowns on top, uh, we all have N95 mask, surgical mask as well, um, gloves, uh, face shields, depending on the actual call. So typically, uh, we would have an idea that we were going to a symptom type call prior to being dispatched to them. Mm-hmm. We doing our assessment from six feet away if possible, and then either being already completely uh, gowned up or putting on all the appropriate PPE at that moment. So uh, we're with it and the PPE that we have, uh, people on the front line, especially in the departments that have those types of suits, we're, we're probably better uh, protected or dressed than so going into the hospital where they have just the plastic gowns, uh, if they have the N95s or just surgical masks and stuff like that. So we're, we're quite protected if, as long as we have them. Uh, I know in my department, we could sustain those levels of uh, protection as long as our call volume doesn't increase dramatically. Uh, some other departments that have had it, that have that kind of uh, protection, their, their supplies are dwindling. So it'll go to a, most likely a lesser form if they can't procure any other kind of equipment. Yeah, I mean, the shortage has been a big issue for a lot of the hospitals. You know, we've heard, everybody's heard about the people are now sewing masks or reusing masks. Um, so so are, are you and neighboring companies sort of working through your current stock? Uh, and is there any way that you have of securing any additional masks or, or suits? Uh, or are you kind of stuck trying to scrabble for them the same way everybody else is? Uh, we... <laughs> So when this started, probably a month, well, let's just say two months ago when this started, uh, most departments' uh, supplies of N95 masks were very, very small. Uh, I know we had probably less than 20 of them uh, for use, uh, just because we don't we don't use them as often. Uh, we no need for them on most calls. Uh, some of them are you know, high-risk calls that we would wear them, but they're just the, those types of folks and very often. Mm. So two months ago, we we had we had barely anything. Um, the county was had a tremendous uh, surplus of masks and some other type of equipment uh, from the Ebola outbreak. Uh, so they were preparing for it a few years ago. So what they started to do two, three weeks ago were allowing departments to put in individual orders 
or request is probably a better uh, word for it, right. uh, where they were able to procure some N95 mask as it was deemed necessary. So you would go in there one week, uh, put in a request in, and maybe you would get a box of 20. Uh, the next week, maybe they gave you 40. Mm. Uh, we got lucky at my department. We, uh, Our district manager was able to procure us uh, close to 150 or so within the first week of everything kind of picking up. Um, and then the county is, it's, they're still doing, they're still putting in orders. We're still able to put in orders. Um, most departments, I would say, are probably okay for, you know, the next week or so. But those supplies are going to be dwindling. So there is an anticipation that things are going to kind of hit the fan within the next couple of weeks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, at least that's, that's my opinion. Uh, and I, I know I share that with uh, some of the guys I work with. Right. Uh, we, we were nowhere near out of the woods on this at all. Um, and especially since we're, we're sitting there on like, you know, with one or two alarms throughout the day. And it's like, all right, we, we know that everybody around us is super busy. Um, when is it going to happen here? And when it does, it's, I think it's going to be pandemonium. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, just to cir- kind of circle back for a second to that. You said that there was, um, you know, less volume of calls right now. Um, you know, what, what, what was basically your uh, bread and butter type of call prior to the pandemic? Was it uh, car accidents, um, some, some other kind of thing or what? Uh, we had a, in my district particularly, we have a lot of medical calls. Uh, we, there's a lot of doctor's offices and uh, health clinics and stuff. So we were getting a lot of uh, uh, critical patients, uh, you know, with chest pains and uh, difficulty breathing and stuff like that, uh, which would be pretty typical for this time of year. Uh, just with the season change, uh, we get a lot of asthmatic COPD ears. Uh, car accidents are fairly common, especially uh, if we have some major roads near us. Uh, and you know, we you know we'd have the typical you know, sick call and grandmother fell, so we need to take her to the hospital type calls. So everything was pretty normal prior to you know a good general uh, case of all kind of emergencies. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, that with so many people staying home, there must be uh, lighter traffic and consequently like less car accidents, I would think. Um, uh, definitely so. Uh, we were, a bunch of us were discussing it last night. And, you know, when was the last time you went to an MDA? And we, a few of us going to remember, it's like, oh, it's been nice, you know, not having to do that. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but on, on the flip side, I'd imagine, you know, with everybody kind of stuck in their house together, I mean, are you seeing any kind of increase in calls related to, you know, getting called by the police to respond to a domestic violence incident or a mental health slash depression we, suicide kind of thing? Or, or is that kind of constant? Uh, it's the psychiatric calls have probably come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the I know the police department's dealing with far more domestic calls than they have in the past. I can imagine. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> A lot of a lot of people that probably haven't spent a lot of time home together are now uh, now home together, and that's not a good thing for them. If people are finding out exactly how close those family bonds are, you know. <laughs> so yeah, well, we haven't seen a lot of tremendous amount of. Uh, we, we just don't see them. Uh, we only get calls for those if there is some tor- uh, sort of injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess it hasn't been that bad, but they there definitely has been a, a big increase on their domestic violence calls. <laughs> 
Yeah. Or should I say domestic assault? Because they might not always be violent. Right. Right. So, um, so I'd imagine there must be some trepidation on the calls that you do go to for people who do not have COVID-19, uh, who may not necessarily want to be taken to an emergency room right now uh, because it's full of COVID-19 patients. Have you had anyone re- refuse to be taken for a ride who perhaps should have been because they, they just didn't want to go to an ER? I would say about two weeks ago, uh, that was the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime there was a, we had a few patients in a row that we would get there, do our assessment and they were saying, okay, we're good. We, we don't want to go anywhere. We just wanted somebody to come check us out. Uh, and we didn't necessarily fight them on it. They, there was no need for them to go to the hospital. But uh, about two weeks ago, I would say that was, that was the case. Uh, at this point now, we're getting the opposite. We're getting the people that have COVID-19 symptoms that want to go to the hospital that don't uh, necessitate a hospital uh, evaluation. So we're, we're getting that now. So are, the, are these folks who have symptoms of COVID-19 or they've, they've had a positive test or is it some mixture of the two? A mixture of the two. Uh, most people haven't been tested. Uh, typically, like, they're starting to increase the, the amount of people that are getting tested, but there was, uh, for a good period, it was really difficult to get a test done. Like, you would have to be uh, really, really sick. Your doctor had to have a real high suspicion that you needed uh, the test done. Uh, so now that people are, are the, the testing is a little bit more readily available, uh, more people are getting it, but otherwise it's just people with flu cold like symptoms that we're treating all as COVID-19 patients. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose it makes sense to do that. I mean, I, I know, you know, we all, we all were getting, uh, getting seasonal colds here. It started with mm-hmm. one of my sons and kind of worked its way through the family. And of course, everyone totally freaked out. Um, we, <laughs> Aaron went and got a test because she was convinced that she had it. It, it was, yeah. ne- it was negative, but you know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, in the back of your mind, every time I wake up and cough, I'm not thinking, geez, it's dog hair. I'm thinking I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> to check myself into it, but get put on a ventilator. Uh, it's just it's kind of a weird time to be alive, especially in, in New York. Um, well, just the uh, the symptoms of uh, COVID-19 are so similar to pretty much everything. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's allergy so. season, too, you know. So, you know, people who have a, a predilection to, to allergies, you know, and, and allergy-induced asthma and stuff must be really losing their minds, you know. Well, with that, we had the, uh, like I said before, the, this time of year, uh, COPD patients and asthma is really yeah. uh, our bread and butter at this time. So you get those patients on top of people that would be getting pneumonia or getting the cold or a flu. Uh, and now everything is COVID-19, even if it's not. And, you know, uh, people are, uh, and understandably, they're scared because they don't want to end up on a ventilator just because they have a cold, you know. <laughs> I, I think if I had COPD, the last place I would want to go would be somewhere full of COVID-19 patients, you know? Um, <laughs> that, it's very true, but for somebody with COPD, especially that's unmanageable, uh, that's where they need to be. And yeah, it's unfortunate right. because you, there's just, sometimes there's nothing you can do, especially with really bad asthmatics and really bad uh, COPD gears. The treatments uh, are very similar to what a COVID-19 patient would be getting anyway. Um, aside from, you know, any antivirals or whatever else they're using to treat this. So some of those patients, uh, 
that are really critical have to go to the hospital and it's unfortunate, but it's, this is where we're at now. Yeah. I know, um, you know, I've like most people I've been haunting Amazon looking for, well, mostly toilet paper, but other things <laughs> as well. Um, Top it at BJ's before this whole thing started. Yeah, I bet you you'll see those uh, those numbers rise of uh, BJ's and Costco memberships. Yeah, as well as uh, probably them becoming um, you know hotbeds of COVID nineteen activity as well. Um, <laughs> since not a lot of people practicing social distancing in those aisles. Uh, maybe they are now, but uh, I don't know. But you know, um, there's also this this concomitant rise, um, you know, with COVID nineteen of, of people calling into to doctors on this sort of telemedicine, but, um, you know, and, and trying to get somebody to evaluate you over like a zoom call or something, which, you know, seems ridiculous to me. Uh, I suppose there's some utility that, that can be, can be done that way. But, um, you know, I was talking to somebody who said that, you know, they used one of these telemedicine places and the, and the, the person on the other end, like a nurse practitioner said, well, have your, um, have your granddaughter there, put, put her fingers on your, on your pulse and tell me how many times it's beating in a minute. And I'm thinking that's just insane. That people, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I ordered myself a pulse oximeter and a, and a blood pressure cuff. And I figure if I have to call somebody, at least I'm going to have some, you know, accurate data to, to provide them. And when I say accurate, I mean, as accurate a pulse oximeter data as I can get out of a $16 one that I bought off Amazon that's back ordered and manufactured in China somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but um you know just the idea of well, go- I, no go ahead just going with like the telemedicine and the calls to your uh, your uh, normal uh healthcare practitioner honestly that is probably the best route yeah uh, getting evaluated in person getting evaluated in the emergency room or even by ems is not the way to go um at this point so i'm i for one i'm glad they're doing telemedicine they're they're encouraging uh, folks to call their primary care physician and uh, allowing them to make the uh, determination of any other evaluations actually needed. So that's a good thing. Then it's a good frontline uh, source for triage, I guess. You, well, yeah. So bringing that up, so we're we're at the point now in the in Suffolk County, at least, uh, and in Nassau County also, that we're in we're in triage mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not taking COVID-19 patients to the hospital unless they fit a very, very narrow criteria of symptoms mm-hmm. and conditions. Uh, so this is the first time I've been a medic for 15 years uh, where we're now told by our, our medical director in the system to not transport really? patients to the hospital. Mm. So we've, <laughs> and, and the amount of time I've been a medic, we we were almost never allowed to tell somebody that they don't have to go to the hospital. Yeah, um, you know, that was just the risk was too high. And now it's on the other end where bringing patients that don't belong in the hospital uh, and overwhelming the system further is going to be far worse than letting somebody's condition get worse at their house. Hmm. So it's part of it is you don't want to make a person who's not sick sicker, and the other part is you don't want to overwhelm the the ER. Or the or the facility itself, yes, or is it more the latter uh, rather than the former? Uh, we have to protect the the frontline uh, people in the hospitals, the nurses, the doctors, 
uh, PAs, all of them, uh, even the people that are going around the clock cleaning the hospitals, yeah. uh, they need to be protected and insulated from much of this as possible. Uh, we need to protect the patients that are already there. Uh, and also EMS and everybody, all the ancillary people from that too. And partly our families on top of that as well. So there's, if maybe a month ago, uh, we would have taken her to the hospital if you called for flu-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point now, we're doing a very simple evaluation, uh, pulse, uh, blood pressure, temperature, uh, which was something that we've never done before either, is mm. taking people's temperature. Really? Um, yeah, it, just, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessary for the majority of our care that we would provide. So even if you had a fever, it didn't, it, the idea was it for not to direct uh, our care where away from the actual issues that are going on. So we never had uh, thermometers on the ambulance. Now we do. Hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> they, so part of that, uh, we're also doing, you know, uh, pulse ox oximetry and uh, making sure that most people and doing a complete history on uh, somebody's medical condition, uh, whether they even warrant a, an ambulance transfer. Uh, if they don't, uh, which the majority of the patients don't uh, warrant going to the hospital, uh, we give them a handout, tells them to, these are the symptoms to look for. If anything changes, call your own uh, physician or call the CDC hotline and then they'll direct you. Uh, but we're not transferring, we're not transporting it. Right. I should mention that pulse oximetry is, uh, is a, it's a, there's a device that you stick your finger into. A lot of you probably had it at the doctor's office that it'll read the concentration of oxygen in the, in your blood. Um, and one of the issues with the COVID-19, uh, is that your lungs are unable to process the oxygen, uh, in there due to pneumonia or whatever is secondary to the infection. Um, did I, did I get that right? Does that sound about right? I, I think it's close enough for government work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not an expert in anything medical. I'll tell you that. Um, no, no, I, I am a, I am a bit of a hypochondriac, so I have that going for me. Uh, okay, so the people that you are taking to the ER, uh, if you if someone's an extremist and you got to take them, uh, what does it look like when you get there? Is it is it fairly obvious that the ERs at least the ones that you're taking people to are overwhelmed at this point. Uh, yes, uh, I I want to be careful because I don't I don't want to disparage the uh, yeah the yeah no we're going absolutely not. I think they're doing a fantastic yeah. with what they have. Sure, uh, but honestly, they were they were probably overwhelmed on a regular basis just being you know these community hospitals that have a tremendous amount of clients coming into them. Uh, and then now this on top of it, the patients that they are seeing, they are dealing with, are going to be mostly all critical patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the amount of resources that needs to go into managing just one single critical patient is incredible. Um, and then now multiply that by 10 people in an ICU and then another 10, 15 downstairs waiting to go into ICU beds that are all on, on ventilators that are all being treated as ICU patients. Um, those are, you you know, you come in with with something else and they're looking at you like you have three heads on just because we, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult for them to manage this, especially with the resources that they all have. 
Well, and that's the real issue here, isn't it? I mean, you're you're overwhelming the healthcare system with just uh, huge numbers of people with with COVID nineteen, and if you break your arm and need to go in there and get treatment, I mean, it's it's or for anything, it's it's uh, it's difficult um, because the resources are being taken up by the pandemic. Yeah, and just just to give you an idea, uh, we went in. I worked in overnight, so we went in uh, three nights, three weeks ago, uh, kind of when this all started. And I was talking to a nurse, and you know they had some procedures in place, and we were we were just discussing it when we brought in a patient, and uh, they said, you know, it's been kind of slow. Uh, you know, we're we're just kind of waiting. The same thing I said at the beginning of this, mm-hmm. and then last week went in, and you could see them. The, all the procedures have changed. They're putting people in the waiting room that don't meet. Uh, very narrow criteria before you get into the ER. And then just two days ago, there was seven people in the ER all on vents, uh, just one entire portion of their emergency room were all vented patients. Wow. So, you know, this is, it's been, it's definitely a progression and I think it's just going to get worse. Uh, And if people need to understand that you're just because you're positive for COVID-19 or because you have a fever or uh, any other number of symptoms, you you don't belong in a hospital. You know you need to stay home um, if, until the point where you get to be absolutely critical. Um, that's you you need to be home. Hmm. That's uh, sort of runs counter to the thinking. Uh, you know me as a as a person who's sick, thinking, man, I I need to be in the hospital, but. <laughs> there's <laughs> no. probably 10 people that are worse off than you you know um, that's the that's the way to look at it I mean, yeah. it's just if, for one vented patient you're gonna you're looking especially just to do the procedure initially uh you're looking at one or two uh respiratory therapists if not an anesthesiologist uh, mm-hmm. a doctor or two uh however many nurses to get everything prepped uh, we were doing that. We do the same procedure in the ambulance for a certain, very certain type of ill patients. And the amount of time and effort it takes for one of us to do it. Now the hospital is using six, seven people to do it. Um, and then on top of that, they have to provide all the rest of the care. And there's seven more patients, eight more patients waiting for the exact same procedure. It's, uh, it's daunting. And I even think the best hospital systems with the, the fully, fully staffed uh, find it incredibly difficult. I mean, at some, you know, these are, yeah, at some point you're just going to run out of medical professionals and you, know, you know, the, the number of, of people required to, to perform treatment on, on, on intubated patients who need an incredible amount of treatment. Um, it's, it's, you're just not going to have the numbers of people. That's, that's the, uh, that's what they're worried about. Uh, so the number one priority is protecting the hospital staff, the doctors, the nurses, uh, all the staff in the hospital. Uh, that's the CDC's number one priority because without them, uh, this this ends a lot faster. Uh, but, or the number is going to be far worse. And, right? d- and day in and day out, they're exposed to incredibly high viral loads as they're working with this patient. these patients. I mean, just the act of intubating a patient, you have to get, as I understand it, you have to get right up in, into their face and you better have good PPE on because there's a lot of stuff coming back at you from the patient. Mm-hmm. So it's, we kind of mentioned on it before, a lot of our procedures that we do um, almost routinely in the ambulance, uh, we, we no longer do or we're advised not to do them. Uh, for one, nebulized albuterol or atrovent. 
mm-hmm. uh, for asthmatic or COPDers, we don't we those were pulled out of our standing orders. So those were the frontline treatments for somebody with diff breathing. Uh, so that got pulled out immediately because of the the risk to the providers um, for just putting somebody on a nebulized treatment. Yeah. Uh, or doing intubation, uh, CPAP, and stuff like that into the in the ambulance. We've been we haven't been told not to do them, uh, but the person better be an absolute extremist before we even think about it, uh, just to protect ourselves because of how high risk those procedures are to us. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you look at you look at the increasing numbers in New York and people getting sick and the, the people showing up in emergency rooms and you think to yourself, and that's sort of with social distancing policies. Um, so, so I guess my the next round of questions I want to talk to you about is social is social distancing. I mean, what do you think about the way social distancing is being practiced right now in the New York area? Is it sufficient? Should it be ratcheted up a bit, or something else? So I. So this goes back to being uh, so geographically. Uh, I think it's it's almost impossible in, in places like New York City, uh, where you have people just stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how further people can get uh, here in, in Nassau and Suffolk. Uh, depending on where you are, I think we could do better. Uh, personally, I it, without going into like martial law. We uh, this is just going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And even if we were to, to enact martial law and make everybody stay home and absolutely do a real quarantine, um, we won't see the effects of it for weeks. So, right. which is which is it's unfortunate because you know, I like anybody else. I want I, I want instant gratification. I want to know that all this uh, effort and sacrifice that everybody's making is paying off. But you won't know until two, three weeks if we've even made a dent. So I think we're, we're doing okay. I think we're doing well. Uh, could it be better? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the people really need to understand that this, that people are dying from this disease and the only way that we're going to be able to stop this is by everybody staying home. Right. Not, not staying home for a little while and then going out and, you know, going out to eat and doing all that kind of stuff and, you know, just hanging out with your neighbors. You know, stay home. Your people are getting sick. People are going to get sicker. Uh, the numbers are going to increase. I mean, it's a natural inclination to want to get out of the house, get a little exercise, or in my case, hop on a motorcycle and ride down uh, West Shore Road uh, in the direction of Bayville. And I couldn't help but notice there were a lot of people out um, walking in pairs and trios and so forth. Um, and unless those people were related, um, I don't know how um, aware they were of what was going on in terms of their potentially exposing their walking partners to COVID-19. Uh, I felt pretty good that I had a motorcycle helmet on with a full uh, face shield, probably better than any N95 mask. But, um, you know, there is sort of the natural reaction to after you sit in your house for a couple of days, you just have to get out. I, I think it's for people uh especially you know we've been doing this now for three uh, about three weeks or so yeah so people are getting surgery oh yeah yeah you know and i get that <laughs> you know I, I went i went for a bike ride i had to yeah i had to get out of the house uh you know when i could but on the other end you know you're when you see what this actually does to people and 
it's most people that are sick. It's not just the elderly or people that are, you know, at, and immunocompromised that have like this high risk for this disease. There's plenty of 30 year olds, 40 year olds, perfectly healthy people that they didn't necessarily go out of their way, but you know, they just came in contact with it and they right. got it. Right. You know, they could have just been at the supermarket getting something three weeks ago and now they're on albuterol treatments at home every four hours because they can't breathe. Yeah. That's what freaks and me I out. Think, you just don't know. Well, I think it, unless, you know, everything is still, I think Nassau and Suffolk, uh, since we're, we're far away from this, so we, we understand it because we're new, all New Yorkers, but we're still far enough away from it where we're, we might not be seeing our own family members go through this. Uh, so there's still people that don't take this seriously, that this is just a bad flu or this is just going to affect, you know, somebody who's in their 80s who would be affected anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's not true, you know, and until they come in close contact with it or they try to go to the hospital themselves because they have symptoms and they see the kind of craziness that's going on, they, they're not going to get it. It's not going to sink in until, until it gets really bad. And I, just, I wish it would be easier. It'd be better if everybody just took it seriously and just stayed home, did whatever they could to make sure that they kept themselves and their family safe and protect everybody else around them. A lot of the mentality that I've been seeing is even from guys that I work with, some, some people, uh, they feel like, oh, you know, I could handle getting the virus. And the, the, the mental switch hasn't clicked yet that it's not necessarily about protecting ourselves, but protecting other people. Right. You know, maybe you can handle the virus, maybe you can't. And, and it seems as though nobody is really up on why some 30-year-olds can sort of fluff it off and why some end up dying. Uh, and just that, that lack of knowledge uh, in and of itself is, is enough to keep me in the house most of the time. I mean, I, listen, I get up at 6 in the morning, I go out, I go for a run, I see maybe three people. And it's the same three people every day. Um, you know, we smile and nod and give each other a broad berth. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. The idea of, you know, every time I run out to Stop and Shop, to buy a box of cereal or something, I, I have a I have a mask on. I marinate myself in hand sanitizer, and <laughs> you know I, I look at it as sort of like a life and death trip, you know, and uh, which is of course freaking my kids out. I guess um, how are you taking care that you're not bringing something home with you from work? I mean, you must that must freak you out quite a bit. Is the possibility of exposing your family to to the virus? Uh, that's. Honestly, that's probably the worst part of about going into work. Uh, again, I think I'm I'm fairly healthy. Uh, I could probably most likely handle getting getting the virus, uh, but I don't want to see any one of my family members, you know, be sick, even if it's just a sniffle. Uh, so, personally, I we our firehouse is closed uh, to all but essential employees, meaning just the responders. Uh, it gets sanitized almost every two hours uh, before our shifts and after our shifts. We Lysol and sanitize every single surface that anybody could possibly touch. Uh, the volunteers are not allowed in the firehouse unless there's an active alarm going off, and then they have to leave immediately uh, once the alarm is over. Uh, so when I leave from work, 
uh, I pretty much get changed out on the front, on the back porch, not the front porch. I try to protect my neighbors from that. <laughs> uh, right. You know, boots, uh, my full uniform comes off uh, before I get in the house. I take a shower immediately, wash my clothes. Um, you know, we're, you hear stories of guys who are in the city uh, that don't want to take any chances. They're sleeping in their cars. They're, they got a motel. They're they're staying as far away from their own family as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not at that point yet, but it's not something that I'm going to rule out. Um, I might be uh, borrowing your camper and taking a <laughs> tent in my uh, in my driveway. Yeah. Or you can stay at your house. Though. Yeah, that's that's fine. I'll I'll open her up. Um, I it it's I was kind of thinking it might be a good time to try and get rid of that thing because, uh, <laughs> or I could just drop it off at the firehouse and somebody could use it. So it's, uh, you know, you just, you try to be as smart as you can. Uh, you wear, I, I wear a mask wherever I go out and it's not necessarily for me, but it's about right. if I'm coming into contact with this, you know, 40 hours a week, I don't want anybody else to um, be getting it from me. And yeah. you know, one thing to understand is that, especially in the Suffolk County EMS system, uh, there's a very small a pool of actual providers uh, between the paramedics and the EMTs. Uh, there's not a tremendous amount of us, especially active and and working. And most guys work two or three other jobs. You know, some work for the city, some work in hospitals as nurses and um, nursing assistants and everything like that. So the same people that are being affected all day, you know, seeing this virus. Uh, you know, day to day and, and up close and personal, you know, they're sitting next to you waiting for the next alarm. So we're trying to protect ourselves from each other as well and just try to be as smart about it as we can. Yeah. It's and a- our procedures, I don't know if you know, um, if we do come in contact with uh, a positive COVID-19 patient, uh, which we're assuming all of them are, uh, we don't do the 14-day quarantine like uh, somebody in the public would. Mm-hmm. So our procedures are, uh, we we pretty much go back to work as long as we're asymptomatic. So if we if we allowed, or if they had everybody go out of out of work uh, for two weeks each, uh, there wouldn't be any responders to go out on these alarms. Yeah, I mean they're having a similar situation with the police officers in New York. There's you know mm-hmm. a couple thousand who are uh, you know self quarantined. So they're looking at about. 20% of their workforce yeah. uh, is out sick. So, and then you've got to assume that all of their numbers are going to be increasing exponentially. Um, so that number is going to, going to go up. So the priority for them is to get people back to work, even if they are positive and currently infected with COVID-19, mm-hmm. uh, as long as we're asymptomatic and no fever, uh, we're, we're expected to be back at work. Um, right. I mean, what just, what is what is the other choice, really? I mean, you know, you can't have your twenty percent of all your doctors and nurses and EMTs and medics uh, not at work. It just it they won't work. <laughs> uh, everything will collapse. So it is interesting, though, that you know, there's there's uh, I've heard people say that you know you can you can be carrying the virus and have no symptoms and. And, and so on, and and or have had it and have no symptoms, not be contagious, but have a certain immunity to it. Um, mm-hmm. 
do they test you guys to see if you've had it or if you have the antibodies and are therefore immune? Because I would imagine the people who have had it, have the antibodies and are immune would be sort of golden in terms of being able to, I don't know, work a lot of overtime maybe. <laughs> so we, uh, our procedures are, so if we do get a patient that's positive. Uh, we get notified uh, by the hospital or we're supposed to be notified by the hospital that we came into contact with a positive patient. Um, at that point, we would be self-monitoring for symptoms. Uh, so even for us, it doesn't automatically mean we get tested. Uh, the, the tests are more available now, and there's special procedures put into testing uh, EMS personnel specifically. Uh, so it's a little bit easier for us to get tested, mm -hmm. even without symptoms. Um, but it's mainly monitor yourself for every 12 hours for temperature, uh, wear a mask while you're working. And if you develop any symptoms, go home. Uh, go go home sick and then uh, get tested. And if you're positive, once you're asymptomatic for for two or three days without a fever, then you can return work to work with a mask on, mm. since you might still be uh, contagious at that point. Uh, but so to, so to kind of answer your question, we're getting tested under very uh, specific circumstances uh, for the actual virus, but we're doing uh, self temperature checks and. Uh, self-symptom checks uh, every 12 hours. I suppose the best thing that we could do is uh, just as regular citizens to help the um, first responders is to not get sick in the first place. Yep. Just, it goes all back down to stay at home. Yeah. There's, there's nothing you need out there. If you, if you do, then you got to be as smart about it as possible. Limit your exposure. Uh, wear a mask when you're out. Don't hang out or you know, dilly dally, try to get as, try to do the delivery versus go to the supermarket or do you really need that one thing that you need, you know? Coffee, just, uh, coffee would be the thing that, yes, I would. <laughs> That'll drive out you out. That will, that will drive me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I speak for, um, for every listener here to, to, when I say thank you for, for doing the job that you're doing, I mean, it's incredibly important work. And it's work that a lot of people would not want to do. Uh, so you are appreciated. I hope you realize Thank that. You, um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I, I know you work today. And uh, I'm going to sign off and say, um, you know, good luck. And um, we appreciate you taking the time out to, to let us know how it, what's going on out there. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Danny. All right, folks, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Danny Rivera, EMT, paramedic uh, out in Suffolk County. Uh, be well, stay safe, stay inside if you can, and uh, hopefully I will be coming back to you next week with another episode of the Oyster Bay Arena. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye.